just as easily as through bread and wine. So what difference does any of this make? But the issue is that what Christ gave us in the sacrament is for our good and for our instruction. And therefore, we ought not to think that it doesn't matter. We should never think that we can substitute what he gave us with something other that accommodates our particular tastes and our sensibilities. When we come to worship, beloved, we should be careful because indwelling sin has made us not only narcissists, but it has made us idol worshipers. And unless we are regulated by God's word, what we do in worship can easily be turned about to what pleases me rather than what pleases God. Why are you here? Why is worship going on? Is it to please you? Or are you to give a sacrifice to God? Now, evangelicalism says that you come here to be pleased, that you come here to get something yourself. You don't think about giving something to God in this, and that's the problem. But our Lord deliberately uses wine to represent the covenant in his blood because wine has a rich biblical symbology. And we should be diligent to bow ourselves then to the word of God and to submit all our thoughts, all our affections, and all our desires to this very word. Holy Scriptures, the very word of the living God. Now, as we talk about this, it might surprise you to know, maybe not, <laughs> that controversies developed over the cup. And, and one of the earliest controversies is whether wine should be pure wine or whether wine should be diluted with water. In the ancient world, dried grapes were used to make wine. Now, if you are a, a wine aficionado, you know what dried grapes mean. Dried grapes concentrate the, the sugars. And, and so when you try to make wine out of a dried grape, you get port. You, you get a sweeter wine, a wine that is uh, more sugar-based, and, and therefore it has a higher alcohol content. And so diluting it with water makes it a little bit more drinkable, but it also reduces the alcoholic strength. So mixing water with wine became a very practical thing. But by the fourth century, uh, the process of making wine kind of changed and developed, and the practice of diluting wine was no longer necessary, but it nevertheless became a sacramental ritual in the church. And with that, they added all kinds of symbolism, and, and, and so much so that it's considered in, in certain circles blasphemous not to mix the wine with the water carries a sacramental issue. So the, the wine symbolizes, according to what they say, the wine symbolizes Christ's divinity. The water symbolizes humanity. And as water is mixed with wine, so Christ mixed with our humanity. And in a Roman Catholic Mass, the priest offers up the prayer by the mystery of this water and wine. May we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humble himself to share in our humanity. But again, the, the need to dilute wine with water is no longer necessary. And more importantly, there's no warrant to build a whole ritual around this. 
We have no authorization to develop an extra symbology to the cup that Christ gave to us. And so, as a Reformed church, we don't have that as a practice. But also, there was another argument that developed about this. The argument is that only red wine should be used because red wine most closely looks like blood. The problem is with that is that we know that in the Passover, red wine and white wine was both allowed, and we don't know what kind of wine Jesus used. We don't know if he had red wine or if he gave white wine to his disciples. And so I don't think we should be very dogmatic about this. But not only that, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And, and, and as I read that, did you notice how that the cup represents the covenant that's been ratified by his blood? In other words, the wine is not there to be a mere picture of Christ's blood. It's there to point us to the benefits of the new covenant, which his blood procured. And therefore, because it's the benefits and not the the blood itself, it doesn't really matter if the wine is red or white. In fact, in church history, it's been mostly white wine that's been used. But anyway, uh, there was another argument that developed uh, from the 13th century. In the 13th century, the doctrine of transubstantiation became uh, dogmatized. In other words, at the Fourth Lateran Council, uh, Pope Innocent III ratified the the teaching that uh, the blood or that the, the bread and the wine literally became the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that the bread and the wine they 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 maintain the the look and the appearance of bread and wine, but the substance really has been changed to the body and blood of Christ. But with that, uh, the the theologians of that time began to speak of the law of concomitance. Uh, the law of concomitance means uh, existing together. And so this is the law of existing together. And the basic idea of this law is that Christ is wholly present in both the bread and the wine. And so there's no need to receive both elements. When you receive Christ's body in the bread, you also receive his blood because it's a whole Christ you receive. Well, about 200 years later, in Bohemia, a man by the name of John Huss gave to his congregation the wine with the bread. And that got him to a lot of trouble. In fact, in the year 1415, a council of Constance uh, was meeting. They called John Huss to that, con- uh, to that council. They tried him, and they found him guilty of heresy because of giving the the cup to the congregation, and they burned them at the stake. Now, you can ask Autumn or or Hovland or anyone who's been to the Czech Republic to this very day, uh, the Hussite churches that exist, you can tell who they are because they still have the cup as their symbol. And in the year 15... 62, the Council of Trent, they affirmed the practice of only giving bread. They, they withheld the cup from the laity. 
But notice again in our text how Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see how it's the eating and the drinking that proclaims his death. It's not just the one or the other. It's the both. But these controversies, in a certain sense, pale in comparison to the modern controversy that's existed for a little over 140 years. Uh, and that is the use of grape juice instead of wine. Now, how did we get to a place of using grape juice? Simply this. In the 19th century, Arminian revivalists became very concerned with the problem of alcoholism in the United States. And it was a big problem. There's no question about that. And so the temperance movement was formed, and it grew, and eventually other Calvinists joined in with it. But the problem is that they said that alcohol, drinking alcohol leads to drunkenness. And therefore, alcohol itself is an evil. And so these prohibitionists, these these people of the temperance movement, they wanted to remove wine from communion. But to answer their thing, is, is alcohol actually evil? Well, Jesus said himself, it, it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles a man. It's what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles a man. It's not what goes in. The problem is our sinful hearts. Some even went so far to say that, remember, in, in, in Cana, the first miracle that Jesus performed was to turn water into wine. They said that wasn't really an alcoholic wine. That was a non-alcoholic wine. And that Jesus didn't use wine at communion. The problem is, well, we'll talk about this in a moment. But uh, there are five Hebrew words for wine. And there are two Greek words for wine. And all those words mean an intoxicating beverage from the fruit of the grape. It's wine. It's alcoholic. You can't get around it no matter what they try to do. The problem, again, is this is, and this is the real problem for them, is that as soon as you crush the grape, on the skin of a grape is a natural formation of yeast. And as soon as you crush the grape, that yeast begins to mingle with the natural sugars of that grape. And when you have yeast and sugar mingling together, what do you get? Fermentation, you get alcohol. You can't stop it. And so there was no way to not have wine in communion until 1869. Now, in that year, a, 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 a Methodist um, prohibitionist who was also a dentist... Uh, began reading about Louis Pasteur and his process of pasteurization, and he decided to, well, let's try this as an experiment. So he was able to use Pasteur's pasteurization process on grape juice and was able to stop the fermentation process so that he has grape juice. That man, you know his name, Thomas Bramwell Welch. If you are familiar with Welsh grape juice, know that that grape juice was originally developed so that you can have grape juice instead of wine in communion. That was the whole purpose of doing that. He tried to introduce the, his new unfermented or his non-alcoholic juice to the various churches, but 
it was initially resisted. Eventually, he won the day. Now, I know I'm going to make some people perhaps uncomfortable with this. Though wine and grape juice are both from the same fruit, one is able to intoxicate, the other is not. And so they're not the same thing. And the grape juice, as I'm going to show later on, I think, uh, the grape juice kind of takes away from the symbology that Christ intends for the cup. Now, I know that some people say, if it's, if it's the fruit of the vine, it doesn't matter if it's juice or wine. It doesn't matter because it's all fruit of the vine. Again, this fruit of the vine is a Hebrew idiom meaning wine and nothing else. And so Herman Bovink the great Dutch theologian wrote on this controversy and he said, we must not be wiser than Christ who expressly designated wine as the sign of his blood and whose command in this matter has at all times been followed in the Christian church. Well, again, Christ deliberately gave the cup of wine to his disciples saying, drink from it, all of you. Because, again, there was a rich biblical symbology of the wine that those disciples were familiar with. They knew from the Old Testament that wine was used to signify God's covenantal blessings with his people. So, for instance, in Genesis 27, Isaac blessed Jacob and you remember the covenantal promises that he blessed Jacob with? Therefore, God give to you the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, an abundance of grain, and new wine. And that was echoed in Genesis, or De- Deuteronomy chapter 7, where Moses promised, The Lord your God will keep you with his covenant and his loving kindness, which he swore to your forefathers. And he will love you. He will bless you. He will multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your ground, your grain, and your new wine. And that's why Proverbs chapter 3 says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of your produce so that your barns will be filled with plenty, that you will have plenty of grain and your vats will overflow with new wine. If you put God first in your life, if you are faithful to his covenant, if you delight in God and his covenant, the promise is that he will bless you. And a sign of that blessing is wine. So wine was seen as a a great gift of God's covenantal goodness. You hear this in the prophets. Joel chapter 2. The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of Yahweh your God who has dealt wonderfully with you. Jeremiah 31. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion and they shall be radiant of the goodness of the Lord over the grain and the wine. And that's why in the Old Testament, wine was always associated with joy and with feasting because it was a sign of God's abundance and his grace and his gifts to them. And so in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, David finally has victory over all his enemies and they're about to set him as king over all Israel. And the people fasted for three, or feasted for three days 
eating and drinking, those who were near to them, even as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, brought food and great quantities of flour cakes, fig cakes, bunches of raisins, wine, oil, oxen and sheep. And there was joy indeed in all Israel. In fact, it's interesting that in the the Hebrew term for banquet hall, for banquet hall, is bet mista hayayim. Literally, a house of drinking wine. The word mista literally means drinking, but it became a a synonym for feasting, especially when it's associated with hayayim, the wine. So wine was an essential part of feasting in the biblical tradition because it was associated with God's blessing. And because it was associated with God's blessing, his disfavor and curses were linked with not having wine. In fact, uh, one of the curses for covenantal unfaithfulness that is there listed in Deuteronomy 28 is that you shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm will devour them. That's, that's the promised curse that God says, your, your vineyards will, will not produce the grapes, and you will not have wine. And, and, and in fulfillment of that, God warns or prophesies to a disobedient Israel in Isaiah 16. Gladness and joy are taken away from the fruitful field. In the vineyards also there will be no cries of joy or jubilant shouting. No treader treads out wine in the presses, for I have made the shouting to cease. God's curse upon a disobedient people was to not allow them to have wine. Now, with all this, my friends, I hope that you're beginning to see that when Jesus gave wine to his church, that they might remember him, he isn't calling us to be somber and mournful and sad. Now, I I, I know certainly the most righteous and loving man that ever walked in the earth, our Savior, was taken and crucified and killed And and surely his death on the cross is a sad and grievous thing indeed. But the thing is, as Jesus gave us wine in the supper, he's, he's telling us, I want you to look beyond the crucifixion to what the crucifixion bought, to what the crucifixion got for us. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, uh, the author there says a very interesting thing. He says that Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Jesus endured the cross because he was looking beyond the suffering. He was looking beyond the cross to the joy that he was going to accomplish by your salvation. And it reminds us then that the cross was a means to divine joy. And with that, wine, with its alcoholic power to make the heart merry, Jesus gave us wine as the symbol for remembering him so that we would not mourn, but that we would rejoice and feast in his salvific work. In giving us wine, you see, what is Jesus doing? He's reversing the curse. 
that curse that you deserve. Each one of us today, each one that lives in this world deserves the curse of God because we've all sinned. There is not one among us who is blameless. We're all guilty. You, me, that person sitting next to you, your neighbors, your workmates, we're all guilty. And what is that guilt? The wages of sin is death. That's what you deserve. You deserve death. You deserve God's crushing you. But what does Jesus do? He reverses the curse by his own death. So that in the place of silence and mourning, now he gives us the shout of joy, the cry of jubilant shouting, symbolized even in that wine. Now, let's move on. Something uh, very important to signify by the wine. And I'm kind of running out a little bit of time here, just mindful of my time. But but something very significant is, is shown to us in the wine. That is not symbolized by grape juice. When, when grapes are crushed, you obviously get juice. But I want you to see that it's not the crushing of the grape and it's not the juice that's sacramentally symbolic to us. The importance of wine is that wine is a transformed substance. Again, when the, when the fruit is crushed, you take that juice and you put it into a vat. And while it's in the vat, again, the yeast begins to consume the sugar. That fermentation process, the juice becomes something more than what it was. Now, certainly, the essence of the grape is still there. That's why you have various uh, varietals, right? Merlot tastes different than Pinot Noir. And that tastes different than Cabernet Sauvignon and and Grenache and whatever other varietal that you prefer. The essence of the grape is still there, but the yeast and the sugars produce something that wasn't there before, alcohol. And so with the grape juice, all you have is the crushing. All you have, as it were, is the death of the grape. But wine isn't simply the death of the grape. It's the resurrection of the grape that cheers our hearts. The grape must die. The grape must be crushed, and it must go through the fermentation process before we can receive the joy and the gladness that the cup represents. Do you see this? It's the picture of the resurrection that's there in the cup. That's, that's really a big part of this celebration. When Jesus gave the cup to his disciples, he said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, what was Jesus saying there? He says, this My blood will be shed for you. My blood will be shed for you. I will die, but I will drink it anew. He's indicating that he will be resurrected. And the point of this whole celebration is that we don't have a dead hero. We have a living Savior who has died and rose again. And when we drink that fermented juice of the crushed grape, we are remembering all that it took for him to give us merriment. Wine helps us to remember what it took for Jesus to give to us joy. And that's something that simple grape juice cannot give. If we only drink grape juice, the picture of death is there. But the picture of the resurrection is missing. 
Again, I want to point out, the point of the cup is not merely the blood of Jesus, but it's the benefits that his blood bought for us. So let's look at some of these benefits. The first, again, is that it brings God's good favor to us. Right? Again, what do you deserve? You deserve curse. What do you deserve? Death. But Jesus' blood propitiated God's wrath. And so as we drink that cup of wine, we are celebrating the fact that uh, death has passed over us, went to Jesus Christ, and that we now have joy and fellowship with God. But also, because of its alcoholic content, wine was famous for its medicinal qualities. Remember, for instance, how Paul, probably under the instruction of his friend, Dr. Luke, Paul advised Timothy, use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and frequent ailments. It had a medicinal quality. Think back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. When that Samaritan found that poor man beaten up by robbers, laying on the side with open, gaping wounds, what does he do? He takes wine and he pours the wine over those wounds. Why? Because the alcohol of that wine cleansed the wounds of infection. So also, the alcoholic content of wine is a wonderful sign of the covenant by which we see how wine brings true healing to the wounds that our sins put upon our souls. In Isaiah 53, it says that, that God was pleased to crush his son, and by his healings we are healed, or by his stripes we are healed. And so, again, the, the alcohol, as it cleanses, so Jesus' blood cleanses. But with that, also the ancient world, uh, water often became contaminated. You couldn't drink water because of all the microbes and all the, the bacteria that would often live in that water. And so in order to purify the water, they would also pour wine into it to cleanse the water, to kill off the contaminants. Likewise, again, Jesus is using an alcoholic drink to signify how his blood is incorruptible and how his, power, how his blood has a power to kill off contagions in our souls. We can celebrate his victory over death because Jesus' blood overcomes the curse and the grave. We are brought from the wilderness into the presence and that's why Proverbs chapter 31 says, Get strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his troubles no more. Now, that proverb is not commending drunkenness. You don't have to get drunk, though, to have the, the effects of, of cheerfulness rest upon your heart by the drinking of wine. That alcohol brings merriment to the heart. It's God's gift to mankind. Grape juice may be refreshing, but it's the intoxicating nature of wine that's being praised in the Proverbs there. And, 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 and the alcohol of the wine, it causes us to forget our troubles and our sorrows. Likewise, Jesus' death gives us a glorious hope in the midst of our tribulating world, isn't it? And, and finally, wine is an eschatological drink. Now, I'm going to... Deuteronomy 29 says a very interesting thing. 
I have led you, God said. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness, and you have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink, in order that you may know that I am Yahweh your Lord. So while Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, they were not in the land that God had promised them. They were not in the God's holy presence, and therefore they were not allowed to drink wine. But as they stood on the banks of the Jordan, and as Joshua soon to lead them across the Jordan to the land, Moses says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that God is bringing them into a good land, a land of wheat and barley and of vines. The point is that after all their years of wandering, after now defeating their enemies, Israel would finally be allowed to rest in the land. And part of the blessings of being in the land is that they get to enjoy God's good gifts, symbolized by grains and wine. Now, as Jesus gives us bread and wine in the supper, he's declaring that he has opened a way from all our wandering to come now into the presence of God. But there's something else. In Numbers chapter 15, God instructed Israel in, 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 in the bloody sacrifices that he commanded them. And one of the things that he said is that during those bloody sacrifices, you are to pour out libations of grain and wine. But he said that you're not allowed to pour out the, the libations of grain and wine while they are in the wilderness. They can only do this when they're in the Holy Land. Now, again, remember, Israel wasn't allowed to drink wine in the wilderness. And what is God saying is that he himself is refraining from drinking wine in those sacrifices. He is identifying with them in their sufferings. And, 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 and Israel could take comfort then in the assurance that God was wandering with them, sharing in all their sufferings. But eventually, they were going to go into the promised land, and the fullness of joy would be there in the holy land. Well, so now, as Jesus gives us this cup, he is proclaiming an already not yet picture of our salvation. Jesus gives us wine to signify again by his death. He's opened up a way of entrance into God's holy land, into God's presence. But while he gives us the cup to drink to, to commemorate this, he himself says, I will never drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. In that supper, Jesus gives us a foretaste of eschatological blessings of the new covenant. But he gives us this while we're still pilgrims and strangers in the world. And as he withholds the cup from himself, he's identifying with us in sorrows. But when we drink of the cup, we're also being told, there is, my friends, a future blessing. There is a fullness to blessings that we do not yet enjoy, and we will not have until Jesus comes again. That's why we are proclaiming his death every time we drink and eat. So the wine is given there to remind us of these eschatological blessings of Christ's kingdom. Listen now as I close. Isaiah 25. God says, on this mountain, Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. 
of rich food full of marrow and of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. That is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Are we not waiting for Jesus? When he comes, my friends, he's swallowing up death. He's wiping away every tear, every disease, every virus, every sorrow, gone forever. That's all symbolized in grain and wine. The Lord's Supper looks forward to that feast that we will share with the Lamb in his kingdom. This laughter and joy symbolized by wine culminates in the feast that was inaugurated by Jesus' death and his resurrection, but it fully awaits his glorious return until he comes. God has not only given us wine to make our hearts glad now, but it symbolizes the fullness of joy that coming to you. And by the very statement given by the Lord, he institutes the sacrament. And he gives the elements of bread and wine. It is wine, again, that he will pick up on that day. And he will drink with his church in jubilant expectation. Oh, Isaiah 55, verse 1 now, though. Listen to this. God invites his people to an abundant life. Wine representing the blessings of the gospel. Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He that has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. I don't know what your life is like. Are you struggling today? Is your finances in such ruin that, that I don't know how I'm going to live tomorrow? Do you have a relationship that has been ruined by sin? Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's a relationship with a mother or father or a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister. Do you have relationship problems? Do you have no peace because of your failings, because of your sin? Come, you who have no money, come buy wine. Without money. Wine is God's good gift. And by it again we see the love of God. Providing life and joy to all those people. And there is the invitation for you today. All these covenant blessings. That wine speaks of is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he calls you today in faith to come and receive from him freely. You don't even have to buy anything. You can't buy anything. You're, you're broke. You're bankrupt. You have nothing to offer. But Jesus says, I give you this free. I paid the price. Will you not come? Will you not come? Why will you die in your sin? In wine, we see the love of God and the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. That removes our guilt. His blood satisfies God's wrath. And it abundantly gives life to all who believe. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God.
This is exciting news indeed that all our sins from the greatest to the very least of them can be wiped away, cleansed, forgotten, no more. And without in its place, we can have the fullness of joy. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray that you would pour out your blessings upon this, your people. And as we drink of the wine and as we eat of the bread, Lord, may we always remember what Jesus did in order to procure for us the great and wonderful blessings, the peace of God, the joy of heaven, forgiveness of sins, the assurance that you will care for all our needs, not just the big ones, but even the small ones, because you're a loving Father. In faith, O oh Lord, let us grasp onto these things and live for you. For Christ's sake, amen.